You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends in human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Justine McGann, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. This is episode two of a two-part podcast series where we discuss conflict-related sexual violence with Julia Dalmen and Tyson Nicholas on the occasion of the 16 days of activism against sexual and gender-based violence. The first episode was released on the 25th of November and is already available to listen on all our platforms. In the first part of our conversation, our esteemed panel defined the term conflict-related sexual violence, or CRSV, as a form of sexual violence perpetrated against individuals with a direct or indirect link to conflict. This link can be temporal, geographical or causal in nature. CRSV is a violation of both IHL, International Humanitarian Law, and International Human Rights Law. It is also a crime under international criminal law. In the course of our discussion, we also raised the issue of the association of CRSV with the term tactic of warfare in UN Security Council Resolution 1820, and how it may risk unwillingly giving a sense of legitimacy to conflict-related sexual violence, when in fact it is and always will be unlawful. In the third part, the different paths for prosecution at both national and international level were presented. The episode ended by touching upon the issues that come into the way of adequate remedies for survivors. In today's episode, we will continue this discussion, talking about the importance of access to justice and examining developments to look forward to. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you, Tyson and Julia, for the very interesting conversations in part one of this podcast series. You both really are an inspiration, and it's always an honour to discuss these topics with you. Personally, I have always been interested in the issue of sexual and gender-based violence and conflict-related sexual violence in particular, and I have dedicated most of my academic research to this area, so I'm very aware of how passionate one can become about this particular topic. Seeing as both of you have chosen to dedicate your careers and your lives to advocacy and prevention of conflict-related sexual violence, I wanted to know what made you first interested in this issue? Yes, well, my career working with these topics and human rights law, humanitarian law and international peace and security, I guess, is fairly short as I've only been working with these topics for a few years now. But I would say that my interest really sparked during the sixth semester of the law program at Lund University, where we had sort of a four week course, I think, on public international law focusing on IHL, human rights law, and international criminal law, talking about international crimes, accountability, how law applies in armed conflict, how human rights law applies in armed conflict and peacetime. And I remember reading some of the case law on sexual violence from ICTY and IC2R, and, you know, being personally horrified by what I was reading, but at the same time sort of professionally convinced of the role and importance of these bodies of law surrounding those those issues. So human rights law, IHL, international criminal law. And in respect to that, I read more about it and again, made the connection between inequalities and gender inequality, violence against women, all those violations of law persisting across time and space and across peacetime and armed conflict and often even exacerbating in times of armed conflict. 
So after doing that course, I decided to pursue the Master in International Human Rights Law at Lund University and RWI, where I really tried to keep that focus of human rights violations, inequality, gender inequality, and that prevailing in peacetime and armed conflict. And then, of course, the surrounding frameworks of that, including the WPS agenda, IHL, Rome Statute, Geneva Conventions, all of that. And as mentioned earlier, I wrote my master's thesis on CRSV and the obligations of armed non-state actors under international law with respect to CRSV. Uh, so that is sort of in a nutshell how and why I started working with this. And then since then, I've been working at the Nordic Center for Gender in Military Operations, NCGM, as a legal analyst. And the center ultimately works with these topics and the implementation of WPS and gender perspective in the military. And then, of course, meeting colleagues, academics, and other practitioners such as Tyson, and working with these topics has made me even more motivated to continue to do so and sort of collectively work for a better tomorrow. And as we've talked about today, CRSV is prevalent in ongoing conflicts, and it requires a comprehensive and collective effort and effectively prevent and respond CRSV and doing so through a victim and survivor-centered approach. And progress has been made, so there is hope for tomorrow. And I think especially for an occasion as the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, I think it's important that we look back at the progress made, but also recognizing that we do have a long way to go, but just continue work collectively towards that goal and for a better tomorrow. Thank you, Julia, for offering us some insight in what got you interested in CRSV. I agree with your later points in that collective effort is necessary, and as you said, if progress has been made, there is still a long road ahead. We will talk later in this podcast about the developments we can expect in this area. But for now, turning to you, Tyson. You mentioned in your introduction, in part one of this discussion, that you have had an impressive military career. And now, while you are still involved in the military, you chose to focus on women, peace and security. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about your personal journey and what led you to be here with us today to talk about conflict-related sexual violence? Yeah, thanks very much, Justine. Look, this is a fantastic question. And I think it's a fantastic question because I know certainly when I engage with content, so if I'm listening to a podcast, then I like to understand that, that individual's background uh, certainly their own personal journey, uh, and also what it is that what is it that motivates them. Uh, and so with that in mind, in my answer to this question, I'll try to provide some of that context uh, to listeners. So the short version of how I've come to work on issues that intersect international law, international peace and security, and human rights, uh, and certainly conflict-related sexual violence as a uh, thematic issue intersects all of those particular um, broader issues, uh, is the cumulative impact of bearing witness to extreme suffering, to attacks on human dignity, and indeed to attacks on fundamental and universally accepted human rights guarantees, as well as the destructive use of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict and indeed in fragile settings. And so we established earlier in the podcast uh, that my background is as a naval officer in the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, and as an officer in the Royal Australian Navy, I've had numerous operational deployments. So I've deployed to combat operations in Afghanistan with US forces, uh, with NATO forces and Australian forces. 
Uh, I've deployed to counterterrorism operations and counterviolent extremism operations uh, in the Middle East region. Uh, I've deployed to United Nations peacekeeping with the UN mission in South Sudan. Uh, and I've also uh, deployed to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations uh, in the Southwest Pacific. In addition to that as well, I've also had a time seconded to the United Nations Department of Peace Operations uh, as their military expert on investigations uh, into sexual exploitation uh, and sexual abuse in UN peacekeeping. And I think it's pretty fair to say, and I'm certainly not afraid to admit, um, that as a result of my military service and my experience, my experiences certainly uh, in conflict-affected and fragile environments, uh, I've suffered a degree of vicarious moral injury. And that vicarious moral injury has primarily been associated uh, with witnessing the use of sexual violence and indeed witnessing the destructive use of sexual violence uh, in situations of armed conflict. And so in that respect there, I reached a tipping point both personally and professionally uh, where I realised that uh, any work moving forward from that point uh, would need to be work that would be able to make a difference. Uh, and, you know, kudos uh, to the Royal Australian Navy and to the Australian Defence Force uh, for certainly supporting me in my desire to want to be able to make a difference uh, and certainly also in enabling me to be able to do so. You know, I'm eternally thankful uh, to my organisation for perhaps recognising uh, the talent that I might bring uh, to being able to work on these issues, um, but also the impact that I might be able to make uh, and, of course, to be able to generate uh, operational effects and capabilities uh, for my organisation. And so in that respect, I suppose all those things aligned, and that's how I came to uh, to certainly be working on these types of issues uh, and to be talking to you today about conflict-related sexual violence uh, for the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Thank you, Tyson, for sharing your experience with us and being open and honest about the more difficult moments in your career. Again, I feel really privileged to be able to sit and have this conversation with you both today. But back to questions. In part one, we discuss remedies available. However, it appears that there are many challenges to prosecution of CRSV, including, for example, access to and gathering of evidence. So despite having a wide range of paths available for prosecution, both at national and international level, the picture painted isn't exactly encouraging, especially when we consider the high levels of impunity. It sort of begs the question, is CRSV just an impossible crime to investigate and prosecute? Tyson, could you maybe expand on some of the points that you made in part one? Yeah, Justine, this is another great question. And I do acknowledge that we have painted a bit of a bleak picture here, and certainly an picture that's not very encouraging. That said, my answer to this question is it's not impossible to investigate and to prosecute sexual violence crimes in situations of armed conflict, uh, but it certainly is challenging. And it's challenging both logistically and also procedurally, and moreover because it requires political will, it requires the presence of a justice system, and it requires the input of skilled investigators and also skilled prosecutors. And indeed, it also requires uh, the ability for victim survivors to feel comfortable to want to actually share their stories, to provide their evidence, uh, and also to want to be able to seek uh, justice in terms of criminal prosecutions uh, for the crimes inflicted upon them. And even if all those conditions are met, it also requires the ability to be able to identify the individual who perpetrated the act of sexual violence in a situation of armed conflict, or indeed to identify the commander in terms of command responsibility 
to be able to hold those individuals accountable uh, at a criminal level. But two more recent examples that give me hope is certainly the situation of the armed conflict in Ukraine uh, and also the situation in Iraq post the cessation of hostilities against Daesh. And so in the situation in the armed conflict in Ukraine, we've certainly seen a willingness and an ability for the Ukrainian authorities to be able to get investigators onto the ground to be able to identify and safeguard evidence, a willingness of Ukrainian citizens to be able to provide that evidence, uh, so certainly in terms of victim survivors uh, of sexual violence crimes in that particular armed conflict, and ultimately a willingness then and an ability uh, for prosecutors to be able to carry forward uh, prosecutions uh, for sexual violence crimes in that armed conflict. What we've seen in terms of the cessation of hostilities against Daesh in Iraq uh, is the willingness of the international community to be able to provide a mandate uh, to the United Nations investigative team to promote accountability for crimes committed by Daesh, known as UNITAD, for them to be able to deploy investigators uh, to be able to safeguard evidence and to be able to pass that evidence across to Iraqi national authorities for the purposes of Iraqi national authorities to be able to prosecute uh, former Daesh members uh, for crimes perpetrated whilst uh, members of Daesh. Uh, and indeed, in that case, there are many of these crimes associated with sexual violence crimes uh, being perpetrated in that armed conflict, sexual violence crimes being perpetrated against the Yazidi people uh, primarily. And so despite the challenges uh, from both those two examples, what we've seen in those examples is how fundamentally important it is to be able to achieve justice for victim survivors of sexual violence in armed conflict uh, by the willingness of either nation states or indeed the international community to take action, to take concrete action, to be able to investigate and indeed to be able to prosecute. And in this respect here, to be either prosecute individuals uh, for acts of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict, to be able to prosecute individuals uh, for their complicity uh, in perpetration of acts of conflict-related sexual violence, uh, or indeed to be able to hold individuals responsible in terms of command responsibility for the perpetration of sexual violence crimes in armed conflict. Could you maybe explain what command responsibility entails and why it's so important for international prosecution? And so the concept around command responsibility is really around holding military commanders accountable for the actions of those under their command uh, when those under their command are perpetrating war crimes, crimes against humanity, or indeed crimes that, that constitute uh, acts of genocide. And in this respect here, what we're really talking about um, is being able to really identify when commanders either knew or ought to have known that personnel under their command were indeed perpetrating such crimes and where they did nothing about it. So where they issued no orders or took no actions to be able to address the crimes that are being perpetrated by those personnel under their command. And in this respect, for a number of our international mechanisms, command responsibility is important because it really assists the international community with going after war criminals, with going after people who are gross violators of human rights at a command level, so indeed at targeting the big fish, uh, and being able to hold those individuals accountable uh, and more broadly accountable for the actions of those under their command. And this is important because you know, international mechanisms such as the International Criminal Court don't have an unending budget. They are constrained in terms of the resources allocated for them to be able to address the gravest crimes against the international community as a whole. And so the International Criminal Court needs to be very strategic about what cases it litigates, 
uh, and indeed in that respect here, wants to be able to identify significant cases against significant individuals, certainly as a measure of deterrence against others who might intend to perpetrate such crimes, uh, but certainly also to be able to uh, make a statement against um, the perpetration of such crimes uh, and indeed to be able to target those who are most responsible um, at a um, at a broader widespread and systemic level uh, for perpetration of uh, international crimes uh, and in certainly for the perpetration of sexual violence crimes uh, in armed conflict. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, the International Criminal Court doesn't have an unending budget, that they are constrained by resources and therefore have to be strategic in litigation. Uh, and in this respect, I, uh, I heard a pretty damning statistic, and that was that the cost of being able to run uh, the FIFA World Cup, which is currently being played, um, is equivalent to being able to fund the International Criminal Court on its current budget for the next 1,000 years. And I think that's a damning statistic because it certainly shows perhaps uh, where the international community and indeed the world might place priority in terms of resourcing. Uh, and in this respect here, um, it certainly would seem to be that uh, the game of football uh, is far more important to the international community than indeed addressing the gravest crimes against the international community. Wow, that is indeed quite an insane statistic. Um, as you so rightly pointed out, it says a lot about where our priorities lie as a society. And maybe it's something we should keep in mind when or if we're watching the World Cup. Thank you for sharing, Tyson. Um, Julia, do you have anything to add on the topic? Yes, yeah, so briefly, in addition to that, I do want to talk about the right to effective remedies, including access to justice and the human rights aspects for victims and survivors of CRSV. And... On that, I always come back to a quote by Nadia Murad, a survivor of CRSV and a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, because she said that, I am free, but I do not enjoy the feeling of freedom for those who have committed these crimes have not been held accountable. And I think that is a really good quote to take on that victims and survivor-centered approach and a human rights-based approach to issues of CRSV. And the issue of CRSV doesn't stop with the violence itself, but we need to counter impunity and work towards ensuring accountability for these crimes and violations of international law. Otherwise, we risk ending up in that vicious circle of CRSV, impunity, broader inequality, gender inequality, and issues of that where one feeds into the other, where they foster each other, and victims and survivors end up facing assault upon assault, first of violence, and then the impunity and lack of access to justice being another violation of international law. And I think that that responsive or that aftermath is important to keep in mind. I really appreciate your quoting of Nadja Murad, Julia. She's a personal hero of mine, and I would recommend everyone to read her memoir titled The Last Girl, if they can. It was a life-changing read for me, and it really motivated me to dedicate my academic studies to CRSV. And thank you, Julia, for raising the issue of access to justice. I think it can be really easy, especially for us lawyers, to focus on the prosecutorial aspect and maybe forget that behind all of this, there is a victim, there is a survivor. And so taking a survivor-based approach and ensuring that their needs are met and human rights fulfilled is indeed central to the process. Tyson, would you have anything to add on this matter? So Yulia's hit on a really important point here. 
And it's just something I want to reiterate for the point of edification. And the important point I really want to draw out here is the need to have a victim and survivor-centered approach. And this approach is aimed at ensuring that uh, no further harm is done. So it's a do no further harm approach, but it's also focused around access to justice. And as Yulia rightly pointed out, this is around ensuring that people have that access to justice in order to be able to ensure uh, that they're able to have their human rights respected, protected, and fulfilled, and indeed to be able to seek appropriate remedies. Conflict-related sexual violence is an attack on human dignity and indeed an attack on humanity. Sexual violence has a profound impact on those targeted by such violence, and this impact is felt across individuals who are victim survivors, also their immediate families, their communities, and indeed society as a whole. And realistically, the only way to be able to provide access to justice for victim survivors is indeed to take a victim survivor-centered approach, uh, which is internationally best practice. Uh, and to do so, uh, either whether you are following a criminal prosecution or indeed whether you are undertaking a restorative justice process. Another important point, which is not so much a legal point, uh, but indeed a policy point, is around how we might better understand and get to the crux of why is it that people, or what is it that drives uh, people to perpetrate acts of sexual violence? And in the vast majority of situations here, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that drives men? Uh, and in that case, I would put to you that it's primarily men who perpetrate acts of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict, and indeed more broadly, uh, perpetrate other acts of sexual violence outside of situations of armed conflict. So it's fundamentally important for us to understand and to be able to engage with men in order to prevent sexual violence from occurring in the first place. And on occasions like the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women, it's really important to speak to those men out there and those men who are listening and ask them to stand up and to be strong allies uh, to those women who are also calling for change and indeed to those men who are already calling for change and to be able to have those confronting and difficult conversations with their fellow men uh, in order to be able to address this issue and encourage others to take a stand on the issue. The elimination of violence against women is more broadly a human issue and indeed a human rights issue, whilst acknowledging that it does impact women and girls disproportionately, and indeed that men are disproportionately represented as perpetrators of acts of sexual violence. It's important to ensure that we have frank, fearless and open conversations to address conflict-related sexual violence and more broadly to address sexual violence in societies and that we're able to address the toxic aspects of masculinity that are associated with sexual violence. And I believe that this particular policy issue is as fundamentally important to us addressing issues of sexual violence and ensuring access to justice uh, as indeed the legal remedies that might be followed through. Thank you, Tyson, for your addition. I think you made some very good points here. As Julia mentioned previously in the first part of the discussion, by having this conversation and focusing on violence targeting women and girls, we're not ignoring that it also affects men, boys and non-binary individuals. The lack of accountability in that regard is also very problematic. However, men are disproportionately represented as perpetrators, and that is something we cannot ignore. And as you so rightly said, Tyson, there remains an understanding that sexual and gender-based violence, and indeed conflict-related sexual violence, is, and I quote here, 
a women's issue. And so the discussion is still predominantly held in feminist and indeed women's circles. We need to move past that limited understanding as a society. It is only through the involvement of everyone that we will make progress, and having an inclusive process will benefit all survivors. But Tyson, you know more than me on this, so could you maybe tell us what sort of developments we can look forward to? So in terms of looking at the likely developments and indeed some of the developments we're already seeing in terms of addressing conflict-related sexual violence, I think it's important to break down both some political developments uh, and also some international law developments. Certainly in terms of political developments and indeed international diplomacy, what we've seen more recently is the launch of the Prevention of Sexual Violence Initiative being led by the United Kingdom, which has involved like-minded nations, international organisations and civil society. Uh, And it's aimed at looking at how do we better prevent conflict-related sexual violence and also how do we better respond to conflict-related sexual violence. So what initiatives can be taken in the prevention phases um, and also what initiatives can be taken to perhaps provide better um, access to justice and indeed addressing impunity uh, to taking a victim and survivor-centred approach and a do-no-further-harm approach, particularly in criminal investigations and in the prosecution of conflict-related sexual violence crimes. Uh, And indeed, how do we also provide that approach when it comes to actually providing care for those victim survivors? In terms of development international law, uh, it's been exciting to also see that the Prevention of Sexual Violence Initiative has also included discussions and negotiations around a conflict-related sexual violence convention. And in international law, effectively, a convention is a treaty, and treaties are entered into by two or more nation states who agree to be bound to those other nation states uh, by the rules and the procedures that are laid out in that particular treaty or convention. And so in this respect, it'll be interesting to see what developments occur in terms of discussions and negotiations and ultimately perhaps the entering into a treaty uh, around conflict-related sexual violence and what mechanisms, both domestically and internationally, uh, might be included within the framework of those treaties or indeed that treaty, uh, to better prevent and respond to issues of conflict-related sexual violence. What I've also been excited to see in terms of the developments in international law has certainly been uh, the, the trends that are coming out of the situation of the armed conflict in Ukraine. And this is particularly interesting because the investigations and the prosecutions Uh, that are occurring in terms of addressing sexual violence crimes in that armed conflict are contemporaneous to the conduct of hostilities uh, in that armed conflict. And this has not traditionally been seen too often. Often what we see is that there's a cessation of hostilities uh, prior to then investigations and then the prosecution of individuals uh, for war crimes, crimes against humanity and constituent acts to the acts of genocide uh, in situations of armed conflict. So certainly if I think about the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia or I think about the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, uh, they were international tribunals established at the cessation of hostilities. But what we're seeing in the situation in Ukraine is this contemporaneous aspect of investigations and then prosecutions uh, for uh, international crimes, including sexual violence crimes. And so that's quite interesting because clearly territory is still being won and lost in that conflict. uh, And so that in itself creates obviously logistical problems as well as procedural problems uh, that we have spoken about um, in uh, other aspects of the podcast here. 
I think what's also interesting is uh, the use of uh, universal jurisdiction uh, and the development along the lines of how universal jurisdiction will be applied into the future. We've seen many nation states uh, already apply universal jurisdiction to address uh, crimes of Daesh or those who've been involved as foreign fighters in Daesh uh, when they've returned to their nation states, uh, certainly those who've been responsible for perpetrating war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, and indeed for providing either material support to the perpetration of sexual violence crimes uh, or indeed for actually the perpetration of those crimes in and of themselves. So those, those things are quite interesting in terms of the development of international law uh, around uh, addressing issues of conflict-related sexual violence. And of course, in this respect, I've linked conflict-related sexual violence and more broadly issues of sexual and gender-based violence as fundamentally undermining gender equality uh, and indeed uh, linked that to women's rights as human rights because we understand and we acknowledge uh, that uh, sexual and gender-based violence as a broad term and issues of conflict-related sexual violence uh, disproportionately and differentially impact women and girls, uh, and hence the importance of such conversations on days like the United Nations International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women. Thank you, Tyson, for this. Julia, turning to you now, do you have any thoughts on developments or, or something you're particularly paying attention to? So building there on what Tyson talked about, he mentioned the conflict in Ukraine as well as other global conflicts that stretch from Iraq, DRC, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Colombia, all over the globe. Um, and in most conflicts, there are armed non-state actors who are parties to conflict and are suspected of a vast part of the identified and verified cases of CRSV, uh, which you can read more about in the annual reports of the UN Secretary General on CRSV. But important to remember here is that armed non-state actors do not have entirely the same obligations under international law that states do because they're not states. And this goes for both IHL, but primarily perhaps for international human rights law. And these are sort of developments that I continuously are tracking and which during the past years, I would say, have been very interesting and dare I say it even a bit hopeful. But that is sort of a broader international law development that I personally look forward to continue following. And this sort of leads on to further developments and work on countering impunity and working towards ensuring accountability, fulfilling the right to an effective remedy and access to justice. And this right belongs to all victims and survivors of violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law, including victims and survivors of CRSV. And access to justice and the right to an effective remedy are basic principles of the rule of law, asserted in several treaties and at least beginning to form part of customary international law. And in addition to that, we see that CRSV, as well as the failure to ensure access to justice, not only has detrimental effect on victims and survivors and their communities, but also have detrimental effects on peace and security, prolonging conflict and increasing instability. So that is sort of a visual, vicious circle that we need to break. And I think that Tyson made some excellent points here talking about the importance of prevention and the developments and lines of efforts being done on that. And that is, of course, something that we all look forward to and strive for. But then I sort of keep coming back 
to that sort of fundamental problem of inequality, gender inequality, violence against women and violent violation of human rights uh, existing and occurring across peacetime and armed conflict, which to me makes the problem so big and complex and also prompts, I think, the complementarity of the bodies of international law that we talked about earlier, applying both in peacetime and armed conflict, as well as the significance of working both with prevention and response. And in relation to this, the Murad Code was mentioned, which is a great example. And there are also efforts on EU level, UN level, national level that are ongoing. And the, the general work and aim to the greatest extent possible prevent CRSV, but also making sure that when it happens, the employed response is there and it is performed in a correct, legal, human rights-based and victim and survivor-centered manner. Thank you to you both for highlighting developments we can certainly look forward to in the future. As we've said several times in the course of this podcast, we must remember, especially in times where we may feel a bit discouraged when looking at the high levels of impunity, that the recognition and prosecution of sexual and gender-based violence and conflict-related sexual violence has come a long way and progress is still steadily being made. Before we close this very interesting discussion, do any of you have any last thoughts? Yeah, thanks very much, Justine. I'll end on this last point, and that is as follows. I have hope for the future that the international community and nation states, supported by civil society, can improve prevention and response efforts towards issues of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict, and indeed uh, can investigate and prosecute conflict-related sexual violence crimes uh, more aptly. But that said, I do acknowledge that we do have a long way to go. But I think podcasts like this to mark the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, as well as the work of the RWI, work of individuals like Yulia, and indeed initiatives of like-minded nations to continue the discourse around conflict-related sexual violence and indeed to highlight the fundamental importance to address sexual violence in situations of armed conflict uh, is fundamentally important. And it's fundamentally important because if we have any responsibility to each other, it is certainly in my mind to make tomorrow better than today. I often think of about the quote from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he said that life's most persistent and urgent question is, uh, what are you doing for others? And I would put to you, what are you doing for others in terms of what are you doing to ensure that tomorrow is indeed better than today? Thank you, Tyson. We will end our discussion on this call for collective action, but also self-reflection on how we as a society, but also as individuals, can make tomorrow a better place. And indeed on the hope that sexual and gender-based violence and conflict-related sexual violence may one day be something of the past. Thank you again, Julian Tyson. It has been an absolute honour to meet with you to discuss this topic today. Thank you for tuning into this conversation on CRSV with Jula Demen and Tyson Nicholas. You have been listening to On Human Rights. This was episode two of a two-part podcast series on conflict-related sexual violence, recorded on the occasion of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and the 16 Days of Activism Against Sexual and Gender-Based Violence. For more information on the work of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute, Please follow us on Facebook, 
Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.